0: Today's scripture reading can be found in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him things all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The word of the Lord.
1: Everybody. Thank you, worship team and Bill and Pastor Gretchen for that prayer. You may be familiar with O Come Emmanuel as a Christmas song, yes? Um, but the language of Emmanuel is the language of God with us. And today we are talking about Jesus the Christ. Our reading is from Colossians chapter 1, uh, 15 through 20. You heard Bill read it, and it kept saying he is the... the uh, not mentioning specifically, but yes, this is about Jesus that we're reading here. The big Jesus. And I'm super excited. I know I've mentioned before that whenever I uh, am studying to teach and to preach, I, you know, you take this stuff in you. If you're a teacher of any other kind of field, I'm looking Cindy's here right in the front with me, like this material, it kind of works its way into you. You care about it at some level and you care about the people who you get to share it with. And so sometimes the things that we study through the week are it's tense in a way that makes me feel very tense. I always think about those stories of like exorcism and then sitting with this idea of an oppressive force in the world. It makes my week very, very strange. So to spend a week sort of contemplating Jesus and then how I get to share that with you, it's really exciting. So I'm so glad that you're here this morning. Now, to catch you up, if you weren't here last week or the week before, we are beginning a new teaching focus. It's like week two, week three, depending on how you want to count. Uh, And these are like the big ideas of faith. So last week we talked about God, this week we're going to talk about Jesus, next week we're going to talk about the Spirit and then Trinity, and we're going to keep going all the way through the fall. And these kind of roughly correspond to this set of essays I'm writing uh, to work through having my ordination recognized. And so this is kind of me showing my work. If you do a math problem, this is all of the stuff that you might would erase if you were to then circle the answer. By the way, at the end of this teaching, you're not going to be able to circle an answer. That's not really the point. Um, but hopefully you'll be able to think with me about these things and maybe feel yourself into them as well. So I'm going to start this morning with a question. It's the same question that Jesus asks a group of his friends. Uh, so they're all kind of arguing and debating, which is apparently what Jesus' friends are best at doing. And he asks one of them, like, you know, all of these people say that I'm this kind of person, which, by the way, have you ever been called a kind of person? And you know that the person calling you, that kind of person, doesn't really know you. Uh, They just think that they know you. Uh, So this question, it has this kind of high theological sense about it, but it's kind of right down in the dirt with us sort of questions. Like, who do you say that I am? Some of you in here could answer that question with greater levels of precision. If you work with me, uh, you have a sense of that. If you... Uh, happen to spend any time in my house or my porch you have a working sense of who i am Uh, but to know kind of the depth of who i am that's probably you're going to want to ask my kids or my spouse maybe and well what kind of answer would you give right so jesus asks, like who do you say that i am and and peter gives this answer that Jesus thinks like, yeah, that's that's pretty close. But I want to ask you the questions we get started today. And in fact, because every good teaching has a fill in the blank questionnaire, because God knows that's how we learn the deepest truths about the universe is through filling in the blanks. Uh, I'm going to ask you the questions and I want to hear what you think. All right. So uh, first name, last name, date of birth, race, hometown income, vocation, and religion, let's ask the question of Jesus. So first question, I feel like I've given away the answer already, but what's the first name? Anybody want to offer a derivative of that? Some other kind of way? Joshua. And where are you getting Joshua from? From Yeshua or Yahushua. You're right. It's this kind of, you've got it on your wrist in Hebrew. Perfect. Jesus, Joshua. Joshua's a really common Hebrew name. So when we think of Jesus, it's like, oh, it's Jesus. But Jesus' name is pretty common at the time. Great. Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua. Perfect. Already we've gotten a little bit more complicated than we hoped to be. Last name. Ooh, y'all are good. How many people wanted to say Christ? Like, this is definitely Jesus' last name. It'd be like thinking my first name is Pastor. It's not. It's John. Jesus' last name is not Christ, but we think it is. So what does Christ mean? I'll go back to you. Christos Messiah. Christos, Messiah, Mashiach, the anointed one. Yeah, that is not his last name. That is a title or a designation. It's kind of like a genre of meaning. So y'all said of Nazareth. That's a good answer for last name. Uh, although you, went, you skipped ahead to hometown. You could also say uh, Bar Joseph for like the son of Joseph. His dad. You sort of get named ben Joseph. ben Joseph. Yeah, just make a little edit there. These are all handwritten, so you can just edit out any mistakes. Date of birth? thirty, 30 thirty-three A.D. I, I'd say that's when died and rose again. So you have a sense of the date of death. Date of birth? January seventh. January 7th? Okay. Somebody else. Who thinks it's December twenty-fifth? Again, you kind of think you know that it's December 25th, because what day is December 25th? It's Christmas. And on Christmas, what do we do? We celebrate. We put the little creche here, the manger. And um, December 25th is probably not the actual birthday, which is why there's a question mark there. Turns out it could be like literally any time. Some people think it's the spring. Some people think that it's the fall, depending on when shepherds would be in their fields, depending on when you would take a census, all of these questions. So we don't really know... The day that Jesus was born, which is actually pretty common. Like in the early church, you didn't keep track of birthdays. You wouldn't have known, for instance, your great like saints of the faith uh, when they were born. That didn't matter. You knew when they died because the time of your death, if you were in Christ, is understood as your real birth. Okay. Race. Based on the paintings, super white. Right? <laughs> Middle Eastern, yes, a Middle Eastern Jew is race. We are doing really, really, really good. By the time we're done with this, we will all for sure get into heaven. I just wanted you to know the stakes of the questionnaire. Hometown, someone said it earlier. Nazareth, Nazareth, which is in what area? The area of the Galilee. He was born in Bethlehem, but that had something to do with politics at the time and a census. Nazareth is kind of a throwaway town up north. Galilee is this area around this lake or this sea. Most of Jesus' life takes place inside a very small geographical area. Nazareth and Galilee, and, and then all of the kind of economies and uh, relationships that develop around there. Yeah, it's so in Nazareth. Income? Zero. Zero. <laughs> now, to be fair, he can turn water into wine. So, he had, like, you could work it out. Turn... Rocks into bread. But, but yeah, so how many people, um, we're going to put, uh, like, super rich over here, and we're going to put, like, decently poor over here? Uh, which way do you want me to walk? Everybody feels like this is the way I should walk. Yeah, he was um, probably quite poor. One of the reasons we know, other than the fact that the people Jesus associates with would seem to indicate some sense of class... Uh, when his parents bring a sacrifice to the temple, they bring the one that you're supposed to bring if you don't have enough money to bring the real sacrifice. Uh, and so likely didn't come from a lot of money. In fact, if you would have grown up in Nazareth in the Galilee, all the folks around you would have kind of been from a peasant background. Uh, and all of the kind of like imperial taxation all of the oppression from Rome gets felt really the hardest in those peasant classes who are having to work their fields extra having to turn in a certain amount of tax to the empire um that's Jesus's people so yeah probably poor vocation carpenter, carpenter? anybody want to offer anything else construction worker. construction worker why do you say did you say michael construction worker why did you say that well, like carpenter like that's how they make things that you like with it. yeah Right. Yes. It's the carpentry. Yes. When I think of carpentry, I definitely think of like butterfly joints and uh, like really well-constructed Japanese furniture, which I love. But th- yes, the word is tecton. And tecton likely means something like um, a builder or a construction worker. It's very, yeah, like a blue collar sort of existence. It could also mean a, a stonemason, so there's a bit of interchangeability. There was a book that came out a long time ago called More Than a Carpenter. Anybody read it? That deeply popularized the idea that Jesus worked, was a woodworker. But there's lots of other ways to understand tecton. What's that? And rabbi could be another vocation. Okay, let's hold that. Rabbi or teacher? Yeah. Uh, religion? Jew for Jesus. Jew. Jew. What did you say? A Jew for Jesus. <laughs> So, Jesus actually has, like, uh, a Jew for Jesus would, uh, I sort of feel like if we were to call First Baptist Church of Pasadena, like, John Jay's Church, it'd be really weird. Jesus is not into himself in the same way that other people are into him. Like, he's got a healthy sense of humility. And so... Uh, For some of us, we might think, "Oh, his religion is Christianity, right? Because it's named after him." But yeah, absolutely, Jews—that's the best way to understand. It's deeply invested in Judaism. A very particular kind of Judaism. Second Temple Judaism, likely most closely associated with like the sect of the Pharisees. We usually think Pharisee is a four-letter word. But the Pharisees tend to hedge closest to the kind of teaching that Jesus was engaged in at the time. Uh, Hillel and Shammai are the two that he's sort of working with at the time. Okay, So, this is, we feel like pretty good about this. Y'all did really, really good. Um, Does this tell us, though, who Jesus is? I mean, some of you had some statements in there that were not just data-driven, but had some kind of undercurrent of faith or belief, the conviction under them. Um, If you asked me to describe, like, one of my children or my partner, Corey, I I would not do this. This is a very weird way to describe somebody who you have a deep affection for. Um, this is not how you describe a friend. And the thing that's made me feel so peaceful this week, as I've thought through how to share my own understanding of Jesus, the Christ with you, is that I want to tell you about Jesus in the way that I've understood Jesus, which has, before it's all of the facts and data and the right answers to certain questions, it is an affection. It's a kind of a commitment to a relationship. I told you that these teachings are from uh, a set of essays I'm writing to get ordination recognized at the regional level, which is a really, really convoluted churchy phrase, right? To get my ordination recognized at the regional level. And everybody fell asleep just because of that phrase. Uh, but there are these prompts, and they're actually really good prompts. They're good ways to think about faith. And one of them about uh, Jesus is like, the question is, what is your your Christology, it's not a word we talk about a lot. What is your Christology? But what they're asking uh, is along a continuum, you might have what's called a high Christology or a low Christology. Ooh, we could use the stairs. So a low Christology is down here. Um, a low Christology is this understanding of Jesus in like the grittiness, right? In the flesh and blood, sweat, uh, eating, drinking, using the restroom, like all of the stuff that makes us what we are, flesh and blood. The low Christology is the relationship to Jesus that is most centered in that part of his person. By the way, sometimes we ask questions that force a choice where we are meant to hold attention. So a lot of what we're going to do today is hold attention. But there's a low Christology, and then you can go to something that resembles a high Christology. I have to go all the way up and climb up the organ pipes to get to a high Christology, but something else up here. And this is where you start to use the language of like all the omnis, right? So omnipotent or omnipresent or omniscient or like all the big stuff that Jesus is a lot like God, in fact, is God. And the higher you get on your Christology, the more comfortable you are with what we might call this like big, sacred, spiritual, hard to understand and definitely hard to relate to version of Jesus the Christ. So you've got the low version right here, the one that is like, we get this Jesus, this Jesus gets us, uh, but I'm not quite sure how this Jesus relates to the Spirit of God, and then this really high version. I'm going to tell you two stories that I think sort of presses into this high Christology and this low Christology, this relatable Jesus and this sort of beyond us Christ holds them together in a really surprising way. I've asked permission to share these stories, so uh, here we go. Thursdays at noon, we have a Bible study, and at that Bible study, we always talk about what we're going to discuss and study on Sunday. And this group, depending five to 15 of us, you are all invited, we meet in the chapel at noon on Thursdays. Bring just like brilliant, brilliant insights from their own life, from their time in faith, from different faith communities. And uh, so Rini shares this story on Thursday. Uh, do, I don't know how long it was ago, but I showed a picture of Jesus playing uh, baseball. Do you remember this picture? It was like a picture of, a, I think it was like a little boy holding the bat. And then it was Jesus behind him, sort of um, like in that scene from Ghost where they're making pottery together. Do you remember this scene? This is kind of what it was like. And so Jesus is swinging the bat. And I sort of was like poking fun at the silly different ways that we envision Jesus. And then Rini came up to me afterwards and said, like, your story reminded me of this picture that I have that's actually deeply meaningful, which is always a, like a good punch in the gut whenever I've spoken with any kind of imprecision in someone who's got a different perspective comes and shares it with me. So um, showed me this picture that you grew up with. And I have to preface it with this because I'm going to show you the picture in a minute. Uh, I have to preface it, though, because we all carry inside of us really early first understandings of Jesus, first understandings of God. And if we're fortunate, those early understandings are beautiful. And they stay with us for a really, really long time. Uh, you remember when you were like a really young kid and you've never kissed anybody, but you imagined what it was like to kiss someone and you kind of have in your mind this excitement and this anticipation. And sometimes like my early understandings of faith remind me of that where I didn't quite understand it all. I had not experienced it all, but I knew that it was really exciting and it kind of like got your blood going and there's some versions of Jesus and God that, that sit with us in that way that it's just, it's settling. And this image for Rini, it, it functions in this kind of, it's a settling image. And uh, so I'll show it to you, and then I'm going to tell you my reaction to it, and then I want to tell you his reaction to it. And I'm going to remind you that this is a meaningful image for Rini, so even though it is also quite silly, it, it carries with it some deep truths, okay? Uh, so, They are all trying not to giggle, Rini. This picture, you still have it, right? Yeah, and Rebecca, this is not your favorite picture in the house, right? Rebecca is a designer and an artist by trade, and so aesthetics have, like, a lot of meaning for her. But this is the picture, and you can see that there's uh, two kids playing football in the back, uh, and then there's this one kid up here with definitely Jesus, and we know it's Jesus because, well, the rope and the beard, and there's a cross in the background, Um, And he's wearing sandals, but he's got like a really, he's got really good uh, sort of form with his foot. You can feel the, you can feel the push and the muscular energy that Jesus has. So he shows me this and I think, oh, of course, yeah, like we're supposed to throw Jesus the football because Jesus can run and get a touchdown and that's, that, that could work, right? And then he helps us win the game. And if we win the game, then we feel really good about ourselves And so I'm telling Renee, like, you know, it's like Jesus take the wheel and drive. What is that, Carrie Underwood who sings that song? Yeah? Or like Jesus kind of rapping behind the kid to play baseball. And Renee said, that's not what the picture's doing at all, first of all. I don't know anything about football. So I don't know what's happening here, to be fair. But apparently it's a lateral pass. What Jesus is doing, right, is he's tossing the ball backwards to the kid. And so, Rini, as you explain this to me, your meaning like, Jesus, yes, Jesus is going to play the game with us, but he's going to play with us. He's going, to, he's going to trust us. He's going to toss the ball backwards and he's going to tell us to run faster and believe in us and cheer us on. And that is not what I saw in the picture, but it is what's happening in the picture. And all of the sudden, this image of Jesus, it is generous, it is silly in a way that I just love, it's fun. And it feels like if I'm... How old, Rini? What's your first memory of this picture? Seven. Like that is, oh, such a soft and squishy little heart, right? Everything gets in. In this image, it sticks with you. It's stuck with Rini. And you know what I can't do with this image? I can't quite plot it on the high-low line. Because the beauty of that image is in... It definitely feels like a low Christology Jesus. I'm pretty sure that football playing Jesus isn't the version people think of when they think of Jesus next to God the Father in heaven, right? Um, Still with the football. And yet, part of what, I think at the center of what I want to say this morning, is that this high-low designation for Jesus the Christ, it'd be like if you wrote it on a piece of paper and then you folded that piece of paper in half. The beauty of the picture of Jesus tossing the football is that it's Jesus tossing the football, but also that there is some kind of relationship between Jesus and the power at the center of the universe. And when you start to believe that the source of all things is generous in this kind of way, even to a seven-year-old, it starts to mean everything. And if you can hold on to that image throughout time, as it matures and it changes and it grows and it expands... All of the sudden, you start to understand what Paul got so excited about in the New Testament, what those early followers got so excited about, which is that one of us, like we know his parents, somehow is the stuff of God. And we can see our way into that story. In fact, what Jesus is, is not this kind of split on a continuum, but is the meeting place of all of these continuums. This is what the Colossians reading really tells us is that everything, all things are held together in Christ. If you read it again, and just keep remembering that this language that Christ is the image of the invisible God is the image or likeness, that's the low, accessible version of the invisible God, that's the very distant, hard to understand version. The text is going to keep playing with this. It's going to fold the piece of paper in half. Firstborn of all creation, in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible. It's like every piece of paper is getting folded in. Heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers or powers, all things been created through Christ and for Christ. In Christ, he is before all things, in him all things hold together, the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Even at the very end, you are, you are high, you are soaring with the language. All of existence and matter and spirit. Everything we can sense and everything we can see is held together. It coheres in the person of Jesus, the Christ. Oh, and also, let's mention just a little bit of blood at the end so that you know we're also talking about the stuff of this world. This is the meeting place of all things. And this is what the church comes to believe over time, is that in Jesus Christ, God and humanity is held together. One of the phrases that I carry around with me that I keep sharing with you is that uh, there are these spaces where God has left attention. And when we force a choice where God has left that tension, it is the beginning of all heresy. Heresy being sort of the language for that which is out of bounds of faith. And so our tradition, the big tradition, says that Jesus, the Christ, is the meeting space between God and humanity, between God and creation. One writer says in his sort of famous book on the work of Christ, uh, the question is, why the God-man or why the God-human? Cure Homo. Both of these in one. That's strange. That doesn't quite resolve. The other language we could use is heaven and earth the realm of God and the realm of creation, typically thought about as dualities, as either-ors, but in Christ are married. The other way we could talk about this is the universal and the particular. One of the ways that Jesus gets talked about is in the language of the scandal of the particular, that God shows up in all of God's universalness and all of God's comprehensiveness in one. In one moment, in one space, in one human, one particular. And yet in Jesus is held, what does Colossians say? The fullness, plero, the fullness of God, the overflowing of God. The other way that we might talk about this, actually this space reflects this to me, is the transcendence of God and the imminence of God the inaccessibility of God, and the deep relatability of God. This room, to me, speaks of that tension held together, right? This is like a really transcendent space. It lifts your eye. There's this beautiful everything happening above our heads. It is supposed to reference that transcendent nature of God. And yet, if you just kind of look to your left or to your right, if you reach out your arms, you will start to feel the imminence of God present here in the pews, in your midst. This space reflects that tension held together. In fact, the language that we have for the church is the body of Christ. So we become the meeting space. The way that John's gospel talks about it, the gospel of John is the fourth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the first three stories about Jesus. John is the fourth story about Jesus. The first three were written very early, They're the closest accounts we have to the life of Christ. John's gospel is written way later, like lots and lots of years later, after the letters of Paul were written. So when you read John, it has this very developed understanding of who Jesus is. And John 1, a beautiful set of scripture, says, In the beginning was the Logos, or the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. We skip ahead to verse 14. It says and the word the logos became what? Flesh. flesh or sarx is the word in Greek. The word became flesh. And here you have the true scandal of the particular if you were like a Hellenistic person in Jesus' time, you knew the one thing that Logos could not become was Sarks. Like by definition, Logos, which in the Greek understanding is pure reason, the unifying principle, it sort of is abstracted out of material reality. It cannot be associated with, it can't be tainted with the like visceral, muscular part of this world. And yet John... Deeply developing theology for us says that this logos, this transcendent understanding of the universe, becomes flesh, blood, sinew, sweat, tears, organs, sarks. Sarks pollutes logos. Again, by definition, you know something different happens in Christ. And then the next line. Who knows the next line in John's gospel? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Yeah. The word is skenu. It's the same word for tabernacle or to throw up a tent. This meeting place of eternity, of the universe, of all reality, both seen and unseen, found itself wed in the person of Jesus the Christ, and then came on down and visited, moved into the guest room, brought all of that glory and power and presence into our midst. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. part of the reason I've been so obsessed with this picture of Jesus playing football. And partly it's simply because I I really like Rini and I love the way his brain works. And so I want to see into the story he's telling me of Jesus as he's experienced it. But also when I really, really understand this kind of folded in nature of the divine, this heaven and earth meeting, this God in humanity, this all things held together in their fullness in Jesus. And then I think about that force welcoming and inviting me to play. That little like seven-year-old version of John Jay, it's really peaceful, really settled. This invitation from the heart of creation. I can feel myself drawn into that. You can feel yourself drawn into that. Part of the struggle is the distance that we often feel from God. Now, I'm just going to name it because often we don't have the language for it. I mean, we come to church Sunday after Sunday. I sit in my office and read and read and study and pray. And I'll be honest, it's not like I hear God chatting with me every couple of minutes about what to do and say. Just like you, there is often, mostly, sometimes for a long period of time, always an absence of the divine presence. You experience God often in God's absence, and in God's absence it creates this like void that just cries out to be, to be filled. Right? Nature abhors a vacuum. And so that, that distance, that absence, brings desire and longing and pulls me toward the heart of God. But it is experienced often as a, as a not-reality. A lot of us can relate to that. And so this craving to be close to God, but then this inability to quite understand what it means to be close to God. How do you wrap your arms around an idea like the center of the universe? Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. If it makes sense to you, then please let's talk. But this Jesus, with stories, that football, yeah. Another friend at Bible study, she was talking about how she was raised with this kind of like checklist version of faith. This checklist version of faith. She answered all the questions. And then over time as she grew up, the answers to the questions were not good enough to hold her at the center of her faith. Right, it just, they didn't work. And before her understanding of Jesus expanded and grew to encompass the person she was becoming, she experienced the loss of faith. But she kept the practices, reading the scriptures, praying, meeting together with folks on this same journey. She ended up going to a prayer retreat in the midst of this kind of spiritual crisis. And at this prayer retreat, she said that she had a dream about Jesus sometimes we end up getting a vision. When our brains slow down and our minds get squishy and all of the faculties we use to block the miraculous just give way and Jesus walks through that door and appears. And she said that Jesus and her went rolling down the hill together. It's fantastic. Jesus didn't show up and answer all the big theological questions for my friend. He just took her, and they they played together again. And this, for her, was the beginning of the road back to God. How can we make... How do I want to say this? We want God to be big enough to hold all of our pain and all of our questions and all of the struggles of this world together. We want our God to be strong and powerful. We also would really love for Jesus to be accessible and for God to know us. Part of what I'm inviting you to do is to hold both of those together at the same time. Jesus rolling down a grassy hill Let me say it with a little bit more highfalutin language from Mary or Marilyn Robinson in one of her essays called wondrous love reflection on that great hymn. We all know what wondrous love is this. Oh, my soul. Oh, my soul. She says, if we sometimes feel adrift from humankind as if our technology mediated life on this planet has deprived us of the brilliance of a night sky, the smell and companionship of mules and horses, the plain food and physical peril and wariness that made our great-grandparents' lives so much more like the life of Jesus than anything we can imagine. Then, we can remind ourselves that these stories have stirred billions of souls over thousands of years just as they stir our soul and our children's, even the child that's still in us. What gives them their power? They tell us that there is a great love that has intervened in history, making itself known in terms that are startling and inexhaustibly palpable to us as human beings. They're tales of love, lovingly enacted once and afterwards cherished and retold by the grace of God, certainly because they are, after all, the narrative of an obscure life in a minor province where was jesus from nazareth caesar augustus was also said to be divine and there aren't any songs about him we here as christians have accepted the stewardship of this remarkable narrative and then here's her way of understanding this narrative the great narrative to which we as christians are called to be faithful begins at the beginning of all things and ends at the end of all things. And within the arc of its civilizations blossom and flourish, wither and perish. And this would seem a great extravagance. All the beautiful children of earth lying down in a final darkness. But no. There is that wondrous love to assure us that the world is more precious than we can possibly imagine. And there is the human intimacy of the story. The astounding, profoundly ordinary birth. The weariness of itineracy the beloved friends who disappoint bitterly and are still beloved, the humiliations of death. Jesus could know as well as anyone who has passed through life on this earth what it means to yearn for balm and healing. He could know what it means to have a tender voice speaking of an ultimate home where sorrow ends and error is forgotten. Most wonderfully, he could be the voice that says to the weary of the world, I will give you rest. And in my father's house, there are many rooms. It's a story written down in various forms by writers and whose purpose was, first of all, to render the sense of a man of surpassing holiness whose passage through the world was understood only after his death to have revealed the way of God toward humankind. It's remarkable. Too great a narrative to be reduced to any parochial interest or to be overwritten by any lesser human tale. Reverence should forbid, in particular, its being subordinated to tribalism, resentment, or fear. Robinson says nothing about God being the playful God the fun, the silly, the close, the intimate. yet so much of the time, Jesus turns into the occasion for fear and boundary making and who is out rather than who is welcome. I love that line from Robinson. When we watched Jesus live, we understood only after his death that this was one showing us the way of God toward all that God loves. I just want to share one last story. Uh, one of my early sermons when I was still in seminary, it's in a little bitty classroom in the basement in Duke Divinity School. And uh, the sermon was in a class that I had sort of cheated to get into because I hadn't taken the prereqs for it, but I really wanted to take this professor and I didn't tell him until a month into the class that I hadn't taken the prereq. It was too late to kick me out, so he let me preach. And the sermon was on the story of Lazarus. My friend from childhood, his name was Matthew, he had died just a couple of weeks earlier. My parents had called me while I was in school. Um, Matthew is a couple of years younger than me, and uh, he had been through a significant amount of trauma, and the pain, despair, and depression had taken over, and he had, uh, he had died by suicide. So uh, the friends of ours called my parents, Matthew's parents, called my parents and told them, they called and told me. And then I'm given this assignment to preach. And I could not escape this story of Lazarus out of John 11. And it's one of these stories, I wrote about it this week a little bit, just for my own reflection, where I can feel the inner tension of Jesus, who has the power to raise the dead. In fact, if you go and read John 11, Jesus almost sounds like annoyingly presumptuous. Guys, Lazarus is sick. They told me. Someone sent me a letter. Lazarus is sick. But we're not going to go yet because this isn't the sickness that leads to death. Well, it turns out it does lead to death, especially if Jesus, the healer, doesn't show up in time. So then Jesus says, well, he's dead, but guys, it's going to be fine because I can fix this too. This is like big, got it all under control Tons of hubris version of Jesus. And when you read the, te- the, like, the text, it sounds stilted. The way this voice sounds coming out of Jesus. And then he shows up. And Martha rushes out, the sister of Lazarus, and meets Jesus and says, like, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And he says to her, right, like, this is so that you would have faith. She says, like, if you wouldn't have been here, then he wouldn't have died. But I do know, I do know that you can do whatever you need to do. So... It's like, right, it's that phrase. It's really bad, but. No, it's just really bad. So then Martha runs home, tells Mary, Mary, Jesus is here. This is Mary, Lazarus' other sister. So Mary runs, meets Jesus. If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And she doesn't say anything else. She lets the truth of the situation sit heavy on Jesus. And it says in the story that Lazarus, this is the one who Jesus loves, loves. And Jesus sounds so callous. I imagine Mary saying, like, it wasn't like it went easy when Lazarus died. Have you been with somebody when they've died? Screams for hours. Inside feels like fire. When he died, we felt relief. Where were you? Well, so many people had to be healed. They kept coming from villages and towns, and I had to stay because I'm the one who heals. This pressure to be the Messiah, the Christ, but also this reality that you are Jesus who loves and hurts. And what happens at the moment when Mary says those words? She weeps, the crowd behind her weeps, and then Jesus breaks down and cries. If you ever cried in public like deep sobs in front of all kinds of people have you ever felt so exposed and vulnerable and naked yes yes i have you do it a lot when you're a kid but as soon as you realize people are watching you learn to stop that mess and jesus lets it out And the story goes on that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And that's the part that we remember as the moment when Jesus can do anything. But it's the part when he cries that I come back to over and over again. This moment of consolation. And why? Because Jesus gets it. Sometimes when we're talking at home, Corey and I, and you'll explain something that is like deeply troubling to you, I'll be like, I know how to fix that. Ah, I know what to do, because I'm a man. (laughs) Would you just listen, she says. Just be here and listen to what I'm saying. Wesley, at the time of his death, wrote all of our great hymns, a ton in our hymnal, said his last words, the best of all is that God is with us. I can see what it looks like for God to be with us when Jesus breaks down and cries. It takes me all the way back to Exodus 2. And this is the good news I want to invite you into today. Which is that God knows. God knows. Jesus walked among us. Among our kind. And felt what it feels like to be in the skin that's so fragile and breaks so easy and loves so fiercely. <sighs> not removed, not distant, or abstracted out of reality, but deeply committed to it. Anne Lamott says, like the best sermon that you could preach is Me Too. Not a fix it, but just a recognition. And what would it mean to be seen and known by that center primal force of the universe who we call God? This is what Jesus offers us. It's to be able to see and hear what it sounds like for God to say, me too. I'm going to leave you with this, just this today. There is more we can and more we will say about what Jesus has done including in death and resurrection. That is for another Sunday in a couple of weeks. But for now. I'm asking you, just let's do the thing. We sort of close our eyes. Set aside for a second if you haven't already. The things that are heavy are troubling. And if you can Just hold out into your awareness that fear that we all carry with us, that we are invisible to God, that our pain and suffering or our joys and delights are inconsequential to God. Most of us have this somewhere in us to hold it out, And if you have it in front of you, I'm going to ask in whatever way it is possible if you would just let it go for a moment. And know that you are seen in your fullness by the God of all creation. And know that this God has not left you To figure this out on your own. But has moved near. And if you've believed. Is in fact moved into your very being. That you are now in Christos. In Christ. And that all is in fact well. Because you have been seen. God, see us in our fullness, to see us back into wholeness. Bring us your good light and that full life that none of us would feel alone and forsaken, but held in the arms of creation by the power of Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.